Father and our God, what a, a privilege and a joy it is to sing confidently together among your people that it is well with my soul. We thank you that in the midst of, of great turmoil and confusion in the world around us, that our Lord Jesus Christ is the anchor of our soul, both sure and steadfast that we have your word as a certain, sufficient, and infallible guide, that you, our God, are immovable. In you there is no change, there is no variation of shadow due to change. We praise you that your promises are sure and steadfast because you do not change. We thank you for your word and we ask for your spirit to give us the illumination necessary for, to, for us to understand it and Believe it and obey it for our good and for your glory. We ask this. Amen. You would turn with me uh, to Colossians chapter 4. I only have a few more times, probably one more time after this, to say that. To turn to Colossians chapter 4, at least in this series. I'm sure we'll have occasion to turn to Colossians once again in the future. But our text today will be verses 15 to 17. And uh, last week, uh, departed from the ordinary course of our exposition to deal somewhat with a topical message on the authority of Christ in the midst of, of sexual confusion in our day. So returning now to Colossians chapter 4, we're going to pick up today in verse 15 to 17. And again, these last few verses can just be ones that we kind of pass over because they seem like formal greetings and just perfunctory remarks that the apostle might make. But we need to remember and remind ourselves consciously that these words are every bit as inspired as your favorite passage in all of Scripture. None of, none of the words of God come to us without profit to us. And if we back up a little bit, we remember that Paul has just asked the people of God to pray and to pray specifically for open doors for the gospel. Then, two weeks ago in this section, we saw that he named off, this kind of painted a portrait of faithful servants. And we saw men from different backgrounds, some were of the circumcision, the majority were Gentiles. And all these men in various ways, various places, had served faithfully side by side with Paul. Now, Paul turns his attention to the responsibility of two different churches, one to another. So we start with Paul's general call, pray for us, pray for those who are ministering the gospel. Then he says, here's these, these, this, these, this portrait of faithful servants that have, that have served right alongside me for the sake of the gospel. Now it's as if he turns to the Colossian church and says, now it's your turn. What is your duty? What is your responsibility? So hear now the word of God. I'm reading today from the Legacy Standard Bible, and I'll explain in a few minutes why. A dear brother gave me a copy of this, and I've been enjoying kind of comparing and contrasting the different translations. And there is a translation issue with the, with the ESV that I wanted to avoid. So I'm going to read from the Legacy Standard Bible, beginning in verse 15. 
Greet the brothers who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. And when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. And Paul concludes, the greeting is in my own hand. Paul, remember my chains. Grace be with you. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. What we find today in Colossians chapter 4 and verses 15 to 17, the title of the sermon, Communion Between and Among Churches. Paul issues a mandate here, not only for the church at Colossae, but also for the church reciprocally at Laodicea, but not only for those two churches. But every church in every place, there is a command here to promote and practice an inter-church union, a communion between and among the true churches of Jesus Christ. We're going to see, I'm going to look at three headings here. One, let's look at the biblical command itself. What is this biblical command for inter-church fellowship? What's the biblical basis for this conclusion? Secondly, we're going to look at the historical Reformed Baptist or particular Baptist understanding of this fellowship. What did this look like? How did our fathers in the faith apply this? And thirdly, some practical benefits of these formal associations of churches. There's an apostolic command here given by the Apostle Paul to the Colossian church to share a letter that he has written to them, what we've been studying. He says, send this letter to the church at Laodicea. Now, you may recall, there were three churches that were likely planted by Epaphras, and they form a little triangle here. Um, Laodicea, Colossae, and Hierapolis. He doesn't mention Hierapolis here specifically. Uh, it may be that that's, that's implied with some of his instructions. There may be a particular reason that he's given instructions only to Colossae and to Laodicea. But at any rate, we have here two churches in close proximity. In the providence of God, these two churches had been planted in such a way that they had an access to one another. They had a knowledge of one another. And Paul is commanding here the Colossian church to share its letter with the church at Laodicea and in turn to make sure that the letter that Paul had written to the Laodicean church would be read in Colossae as well in order to promote communion between and among those mutual churches. Now this interchurch unity is, is rooted in, in a substantial truth that we find in the scriptures. And we, we would call this the doctrine of the universal church. The doctrine of the universal church. The reason Paul is commanding a unity is because there is a substantial oneness in Christ with all true churches. So for example, if we turn back in Colossians to chapter 1, verse 18, listen to this. He, which is Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Paul asserts that Christ is the head of the church. Then later in that same chapter, just a few verses down in verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I fill up what is lacking of Christ's affliction in my flesh, on behalf of his body, which is the church. See, there's a picture of one 
church, one unified body of Christ. Christ doesn't have multiple bodies. He has one body. We see the same thing in Ephesians 5. You don't have to turn here, but in Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 28, just listen to this. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, of his one body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And of course, every Lord's Day, when we confess together the Apostles' Creed, what do we confess? I believe in one holy Catholic church. Now, you'll notice when it's printed up here, it's on a lowercase c. We are not confessing in any way, shape, or form allegiance to the church at Rome. Catholic just simply means universal. In fact, that that term preceded the Roman Catholic Church. That's why they use that term, as they profess to be the universal church, and they are wrong about that. But it is right for us to confess that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, a universal church. Listen to the way our, our confession of faith summarizes this and how it articulates this very doctrine. If you have a copy of your confession with you, you can turn with me there in chapter 26. If not, in the, the blue Trinity hymnal there at your seat, on page, in the back of it is a copy of our confession. You can find it on page 684. There is, in the very first paragraph, the first phrase within this paragraph, it says, the Catholic, again, notice the lowercase c, the Catholic or universal church, those are synonyms, which, with respect to the internal work of the Spirit and truth of grace, may be called invisible, and it consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. So every believer in every place and every time has been grafted into one body, one church universal. There is a fundamental union in Christ. He is the head of that body. He is the spouse, the husband of that body. Paragraph 2 says, All persons throughout the world professing the faith of the gospel and obedience unto God by Christ according unto it, who do not destroy their own profession by any errors, diverting the foundation or unholiness of conversation, are and may be called visible saints. And of such ought all particular congregations to be constituted. Now, notice the language shifts from church universal to church particular. But the the particular congregations are to be comprised of those who are part of the church universal. The next paragraph says the the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. It's acknowledging what we know to be true. We know this is is obvious. The, The best of churches we'll have a mixture of error. There are things that we don't get quite right. One day we will, but some of those churches have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, Christ always hath had and ever shall have a kingdom in this world to the end thereof of such as believe in him and make profession in his name. Christ will always have a witness. There will always be a remnant in this world. 
Saints, do not despair. Do not be discouraged when we see the church seem, seemingly to be weak and insignificant. Christ has always and will always preserve a remnant for his own glory. In paragraph four, this is the paragraph that is sometimes, or at least a phrase in this, is most controversial in our, our confession of faith, and it really ought not to be when we understand it in context. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Now, that's not the controversial part. Surely, that's not the controversial part, right? Neither can the Pope of Rome, in any sense, be head thereof. Well, that shouldn't be controversial either, should it? But is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition that exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called good, or all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming? Well, that's the part that's controversial. People get a little sensitive and you say, well, the Pope is that Antichrist. Wait a minute. Is he, is he really the Antichrist? Well, first of all, it doesn't say the Antichrist. It says that Antichrist. It, it's, it's, a, it's a concept it is a doctrinal position, but it's also an assertion that one man is the vicar of Christ, that he is Christ's earthly representative over the whole church. Well, the Bible says Christ is the exclusive and only head of the church. He has no rival. He has no competitor. So anyone who says, I am the head of the church, is opposed to Christ. But also that word anti-Christ can mean instead of, not only against, but instead of. So he puts himself in place of Christ. Come to me and confess your sins. When Christ says, no, 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 you come to me and me alone as your mediator. So in that sense, it is anti-Christ. Well, what's the point of these, these four paragraphs? We take them together. There is, there, is, there is a universality of the church because, because we have one head. We have one Christ, one body, one baptism, one blood. And it is through that church universal that Paul can appeal to the saints in Colossians say, you have a duty to acknowledge in tangible ways your unity in Christ with other believers, with other churches. So the apostolic command for fellowship between and among churches is rooted in the oneness of Christ as head of those churches. And ultimately, all churches share that same body. The Lord Jesus is not a polygamist. He doesn't have multiple wives. He has one wife. He has one body. He has one bride. He is the head and husband of his one true church. And yet, the Bible speaks most often not about the church universal, but about the church local. You go through the New Testament. You look at the book of Acts, and you see how Paul went and planted and established local churches in various places, in various countries, various continents. You also see, as you read through the epistles, the way that they're addressed. They're addressed to a particular people in a particular place. So, for example, he says in Galatians chapter 1, in his introduction, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches, plural, of Galatia. Galatia was a region in Asia. There were multiple churches there. He writes this letter to be circulated among multiple churches. And I think this is a point at which most, much of our thinking and speaking and writing within evangelicalism today gets muddy because we don't take the time to distinguish between the local church and the church universal. 
So sometimes, even in our language, we'll say things like, well, the problem with the church today. What do we mean by that? Do we mean there's a problem with a particular local church? Or are we we assaulting and denigrating Christ's one pure, whole, universal church? We ought to be cautious even in our language how we speak about Christ's church. So again, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 11. The apostle receives this vision and the angel says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. See, in that, that Lycus Valley, there were seven churches established. In Philippi, Philippians, Paul writes, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Now, Paul's greeting to the Corinthian church reveals that Paul is consciously aware of this distinction between church universal and the church local. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, again in his introduction, his greeting, to the church of God that is in Corinth. So that's church local. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ both their Lord and ours. So he speaks both to the church local, but acknowledges you are part of something bigger. You are part of something far far more uh, broad and expansive than you even can imagine. And because of this union they enjoy with Christ, these local churches ought to seek the mutual welfare of other true churches. Now Paul assumes his starting place is that this is already happening, and he says, do more of that. Press on with that. The churches in Colossae and Laodicea have already had some contact. Paul doesn't have to say, well, you're going to have to go and make introductions there. You're going to have to figure out where they are and go find them and introduce yourselves. No, he doesn't say that. In fact, he starts with, this is, this is come back to Colossians chapter 4. This is why I mentioned that I'm reading from the the. Legacy standard today rather than ESV. In verse 15, he says, greet the brothers who are in Laodicea. The ESV says, send my greetings. Well, there's a couple problems there. Number one, that's not in the text. It's not in the Greek text. There's nothing here that Paul says anything about his greetings. Plus, secondly, that wouldn't make any sense. If I wrote to you a letter, and then I wrote somebody at the same time, wrote a letter to someone else and said, oh, by the way, send my, tell them I said hello. Well, I've just sent them a letter. So Paul has written a letter to Laodicea, and he's written a letter to the Colossian church. And he says, I want you both to read those letters aloud and then swap them. So it wouldn't make any sense. So for these these texts, three things end up being abundantly clear. Number one, that God has established one universal church. The church at Colossae, the church at Laodicea were part of that universal church. But it's also clear that these these churches have an individual church and local expression. Colossae and Laodicea were not the same local church, although they were both part equally of the church universal. And thirdly, that these individual and local churches ought to have a formal relationship with one another, an ongoing relationship, both for their mutual good and also for the glory of Christ, for their shared testimony together. 
Now, what does this look like in practice? How, how does this work itself out in, in real life? And thankfully, we have a, a, a rich heritage of Reformed Baptists. The older term was particular Baptists, from which we can draw. And among our particular Baptist forefathers, we have a pattern of biblical fidelity that flushes out what does this look like. So let's, let's seek to understand a little bit about the historic particular Baptist understanding or Reformed Baptist understanding of this mutual fellowship. And notice that Paul views these churches as, one, separate and distinct churches, but two, interdependent and capable both of ministering to the other. The Colossian church was not over the Laodicean church, nor was the Laodicean church over the Colossian church. They were viewed as equals and and able mutually to benefit one another. Now, generally, there are three forms of church government that have appeared on the scene of history. The, The first one is, just very quickly, an Episcopal form of government. An Episcopal form. So the Roman Catholic Church would be an example of this, or the Anglican Church would be an example of this. It's very much a hierarchical structure. There is a a pope or a bishop or someone at the top, and it's almost like a corporate organizational chart. Power descends from the top. So all leaders are chosen from the top level, and the leaders are pressed down into local congregations. Those are, now some, even among the cults, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, practice a similar model. And the decisions are made from the top, and those decisions are binding on those below. And it's a top-down approach to even the, the choosing and selection of leaders, and often those leaders are chosen by a mystical or secret process. And even the church at Rome, if you... Remember the last pope that was chosen. There's an air of secrecy and mysticism in all of that. And it's chosen from the top. The local, the local people are just simply waiting for the smoke to come out or whatever it is to find out who the new pope is. Well, that's, that's, that's one form of government that has been rampant on the scene of church history. The other one is a Presbyterian form. This is also a hierarchical model. Meaning, and what I mean by hierarchy is there are layers of authority. Now, this one, the decisions from the top are also binding on those below, but this one's different, and it's distinct because the leaders are chosen not from the top down, but from the bottom up. So a local congregation will select its leaders to serve in a a Presbyterian model of government. There's a session, that's the local board of elders, and then of that session, there are representatives sent to a presbytery, which would be kind of a regional area, maybe multiple churches in in a community or a region, And then those would send representatives to a general assembly, which would be the the large umbrella. But they would consider multiple local churches to be one church. So it's a bottom-up, but still a hierarchical process. And then the congregational model. And you know when someone gives you three models or something like that, it's always the third one that you're going to be preferring, right? You know how that works. In a congregational context, all rule and authority is given to a local church alone. There is no superstructure. There is no hierarchy. Local churches choose their leaders. Local churches are self-governing. Listen to again how our confession of faith expresses this. And I'm, I'm, I'm quoting from our confession extensively today for, one, for a couple of reasons. One, 
the chapter of the church in our confession is the largest of the chapters because it, 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 in its historical context, it needed to be long to explain the differences that we had, certainly with Rome, but also with even Presbyterian brothers and sisters in terms of how the church, we believe, according to the scriptures, ought to be organized. So in chapter 26, again, if you're in Trinity Hymnals, page 684, paragraph 5, I read 1 through 4 earlier, Paragraph 5 says, In the execution of this power, wherewith he, which is Christ, is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calls out of the world unto himself, through the ministry of his word, by his spirit, those that are given to him by his Father, that they may walk before him in all the ways of obedience which he prescribeth to them in his word. Those thus called, he commandeth to walk together in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship which he requireth of them in this world. So out of all those that Christ has called to himself, all those that he has grafted into his own body, those who he has made members of the church universal, he also commands that all of those are to organize themselves and to join themselves to a particular local body. So it is not enough for a Christian to say, I'm a member of the Church Universal. That's wonderful. What church do you go to on Sunday? What, to what church have you pledged yourself to? What brothers and sisters in particular have you given a bond that you say, I am committed to these? Not because I despise the others, or, or dispense with duties to them. But where is my first and chiefest priority? So chapter 5 says that. Chapter 6 simply summarizes the members of these church are saints by calling, and they represent that, that calling by their obedience, and they, they willingly consent to walk together. But listen to paragraph 7. To each of these churches thus gathered, so these local churches now, According to his mind, according to Christ's mind declared in his word, he has given all that power and authority which is in any way needful for their carrying on that order and worship and discipline which he hath instituted for them to observe with commands and rules for the due and right exerting and executing of that power. The footnote here, the scriptural reference, the very first one is, is to Matthew 18. It's, church, it's, the, it's the passage on church discipline, the keys of the kingdom. There is a recognition that, that the a local church is given the power and authority by Christ to execute all the duties that he's required of a local church. We do not have to look at churches outside of us or a structure outside of us. So, for example, the Colossian church. They, when, if, if they had, when matters came to their attention that needed discipline and correction of its own members... It was that local church's responsibility, and they had all the authority from Christ in order to deal with that problem. The same would be true with the church at Laodicea. There are two extremes that we want to avoid as we think about this inter-church cooperation and the establishment and maintenance of a local church. On the one hand, one extreme would be giving up Christ's exclusive rule of a local church by submitting ourselves to a hierarchy by saying there is something outside of us or above GFBC Conroe to whom we are accountable other than Christ. But on the other hand, 
The other error is to isolate ourselves from the broader Christian church, from the broader Christian community, and especially from like-minded churches with whom we could share mutual benefit. So in the 17th century, the, the answer among our Baptist forebears was the concept of associations, the concept of, of a formal union between churches with the same confession of faith, who had the same beliefs, who had the same understanding of the Scriptures, and to say, we have, by God's providence, been planted near enough to one another that we can cooperate together, we can encourage one another, we can exhort one another, we can help one another, we can be of mutual benefit one to another. You notice that in, in our confession of faith with respect to a local church, all of us together are joined in this local body and one of the, and for our mutual benefit. Well, that mutual benefit at this individual local level also exists among churches as well. Turn with me to Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, in the early church, there was a controversy that erupted among various churches. Now, I read to you a moment ago from Paul's introduction to the letter to the Galatian churches. Paul's letter to the Galatian churches would have been written after the event in Acts 15. But, there's, but it's the same issue. There were certain brothers, self-appointed we find out later, self-appointed men from Jerusalem who had gone out to other churches, and here's what they were saying. In order to be Christians, you have to be circumcised, and you have to obey the law of Moses. Well, you can see, if you're a Gentile, how that might be troubling to you. You think? That, that could be troubling. Tr- troubling in, in, in ways of, of, you know, obviously physical trouble, but also trouble with your conscience. Is this true? Do I really need to do this? Because... Peter came and preached to me and to, to, to our church, and we were told that we are to, to embrace Christ by faith, and by faith we enter into the kingdom of heaven. But these other men came and said, well, that's, that's true, but you also need to be circumcised. You need to keep the whole law of Moses. So in the beginning of chapter 15 of Acts, we read this, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had not a little dissension and debate with them, the brothers determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Now, when it says they came down to them, Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch. That was a, a almost thoroughly Gentile church. And these Jewish men came down and said, you, you have to be circumcised. And, and in classic Lucan language, I love this, he says, it was no small disturbance. It was no little dissension. So Paul and Barnabas began to make their way to Jerusalem. The church said, this will be good for you to go, go up to Jerusalem, consult with the church there. And there were other representatives. If you read through, you'll see that the, the apostles and elders, verse 6, came together to look into this matter. There was much debate back and forth. The Pharisees, there were some, Luke says there were Pharisees who believed on Christ, but they were still confused about this matter of circumcision. Several of those spoke. Then Peter stands up and speaks and says, we all know that this was by faith that we've been saved, just as the Gentiles are. And and Peter says, why would we lay upon these brothers 
burdens that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. Why would we do that to them? And then James stands up. James was a prominent member of the prominent leader in the Jerusalem church. And he says, I judge, in verse 13, now after he had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related, Peter has related, how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And then he quotes from the scriptures and says, brothers, we should know, this was in our Bible all along, that the Gentiles would be saved. And they would be saved by faith. So look down at verse 22. And I would encourage you to go home and reread this chapter and kind of think through the implications of, of this. But in verse 22, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them, Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, and they sent this letter. So they not only send Paul and Barnabas back with a letter, but they thought, you know, what would be really good and encouraging to do to our Gentile brothers is let's send a couple of Jewish representatives, because they've had some self-appointed representatives who did not represent us well. Let's send some faithful brothers to go alongside Paul and Barnabas with our letter and say, we've consulted together with all the churches. This is, this, we believe this is the mind of Christ. And they read this letter. The apostles and the brothers who are elders to the brothers in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles. So this letter is going, is going to multiple churches. Since we've heard that some of us to whom we gave no instruction, see, these were self-appointed men, some of us whom, to whom we gave no instruction have gone out and disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. It seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, and they themselves will report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from sexual morality, from which if you keep yourselves, you will do well. So when they went away, they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. The apostles did not just issue a decree. They discussed this openly in, among the church and among the elders of the various churches. They came to one accord, and they sent a circular letter advising the churches how to deal with this issue, recognizing on the one hand the autonomy of every local church, and on the other, that the ability negatively or positively, for one church or even representatives from one church to have a huge impact on all the churches around. And again, our, our forefathers in the faith worked this out like this. And, and going back to our confession in chapter 26, looking now at paragraphs 14 and 15, Paragraph 14 says, as each church and all the members of it are bound 
to pray continually for the good and prosperity of all the churches of Christ. Now, haven't we seen that already in Colossians? Isn't that the duty placed upon us by the Word of God? We are to pray for the good and prosperity of all the churches of Christ in all places and upon all occasions to further it, everyone within their, the bounds of their places and callings. And that was a common expression among the Puritans, places and callings. Or sometimes you'll see places and stations. It means, by God's providential appointment, where are you? Are you a husband? Then this is your place. This is your responsibility. Are you a wife? This is your place and your responsibility. Are you a magistrate? Are you a slave? Are you a master? Based on where God has placed you, what kind of responsibilities do you have? So within the bounds of their places and callings, in the exercise of their gifts and graces, so the churches, when planted by the providence of God, so as they may enjoy opportunity and advantage for it, ought to hold communion among themselves for their peace, increase of love, and mutual edification. So here's the conclusion. As God has planted churches, we know it is Christ who establishes churches. As Christ has planted churches, and in his providence, those churches have opportunity. They ought, this is the language of duty, they ought to hold communion together. And the old word, communion, means a sharing, it means a fellowship. It means, it means a, a pooling together of resources and abilities. Then listen to this. Paragraph 15 is very important in our understanding of how these doctrines work out in in real life. In cases of difficulties or differences, either in point of doctrine or administrations, they have four different possibilities imagined. There there are difficulties or differences, um, either in doctrine or administration. Now, what was Acts chapter 15 describing? What was the difference in doctrine, was it? There's a difficulty and a difference in doctrine. Wherein either the churches in general are concerned, well, again, that was was what was going on in Acts 15. The churches in general had a concern over this matter of, is circumcision required or not? Kind of a big question. Or any one church in their peace, union, and edification. Or any member or members of any church are injured in or by any proceedings and censures not agreeable to truth and order. So here's the scenario. Whether it's multiple churches who are having problems, maybe it's one church among a bunch of other churches that's having a problem, maybe it's even one member. This is how much Christ is concerned for every one of his sheep. Even a single member is disturbed. And and the idea here, the, the, the hypothetical that's presented here is one member has been disciplined, has been censured, has been excommunicated. And it's not been according to justice. It's not been according to truth and order. What recourse? What recourse does it was in, in a local, independent, autonomous Baptist church, what recourse does that one member have against a tyrannical abusive authority of a pastor or even a congregation? Well, here's the answer. We believe it's according to the mind of Christ that many churches holding communion together do by their messengers meet to consider and give their advice in or about that matter indifference to be reported to all the churches concerned. Howbeit, these messengers assembled are not entrusted with any church power, properly so called, 
or with any jurisdiction over the churches themselves to exercise any censures either over any churches or persons or to impose their determination on the churches or officers. Remember, Big Dave and I, years ago, this is well over a decade ago, we were talking about um, conflicts with, uh, between and among churches, these exact scenarios. And we were not, had not yet come to a full understanding of some of these things and certainly had not seen it worked out in real life. We were reading in the scriptures, we were reading in our confession, but had not seen this worked out and thought, you know, I see some real advantages to a Presbyterian form of government. I don't see it in the scriptures, but we agreed we see some practical benefits because if there's a difficulty or a conflict within a church, you had resources, you had, you had capabilities beyond that local church to help you work through it. The problem is, is that that introduces a, a, an outside authority into a local church that we don't believe biblically is present. Well, I believe the Baptists not only found a golden mean, but found, but discovered and, and applied what the scriptures actually teach. And that is this. The churches are to have a formal association, a formal communion together, whereby they are mutually obligated to help one another in such cases of difficulty, whether it's a doctrinal problem, a discipline problem, an administrative problem. I don't know, if you've been around a church long enough to know, sometimes conflict happens. You ever seen that? Even in your own family, sometimes a conflict can happen, and sometimes you need some outside help. Sometimes a husband and wife, a godly couple, need to sit down with a third party that can look at both of them and say, okay, I see what's going on here. Sir, you need to, and ma'am, you need that kind of thing. Well, that happens at a church level, too. Sometimes we need the help of brothers and sisters to help us cut through the fog of, of our own emotions or our own difficulties. Sometimes there's a doctrinal issue we're not seeing clearly. And an association of churches can help sort through that. It's not a panacea. We know this doesn't, because this doesn't stop sin, does it? This doesn't stop our own selfishness. It doesn't stop those, those difficulties that, that still ensnare us. But it does give us perspective. It helps us work through difficulties. It helps us to be, um, w- with our, our, our doctrine and administration, more faithful to the Scriptures because we have that outside accountability. The difference is the association of churches has no church power. What does that mean? It means a church, the, the association cannot excommunicate someone, for example. The church, the association cannot appoint or remove officers, for example. Who gets to do that? Only the local church does. So, so, so let's say um, I decided, got a wild hair, decided I wanted to, one of you dear sisters, you know, you'd make a great elder. We're going to appoint you as an elder. Well, all of you would rightly say, I hope, that's unbiblical. And you would have every right to appeal to our association and say, that's out of bounds. That's not what we agreed to. And our association would have no authority to undo what this local church did. If we all agreed together, oh, he's right. We are going to appoint one of our sisters to be a, a pastor. Even if we all agreed together, it doesn't make it right, does it? And the association couldn't undo that action, but could hear the matter and publish to all the churches. Says, this church is no longer confessional. The church is no longer faithful to the scriptures. And, and have and shine the light of day upon those kinds of errors. That's what was happening, I believe, in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. They shone the light on this error 
There were brothers who were unaccountable, unappointed, but they were going out and teaching these things. And the church said, number one, we didn't send them. Number two, they were teaching error, and they published that to all the churches. So there's some very practical benefits of this. And a survey of the 17th century particular Baptist literature shows to us that when when the language of communion is used here, it means formal association. It's not just an ad hoc. I mean, those things are fine. We can cooperate with other churches in, in informal ways, but this is speaking to a formal relationship. So in our uh, state and national associations, we have a formal membership process. Churches visit for a while, and, and they their, their elders are, are questioned about their beliefs and practices, and, and the association votes whether or not to receive them as sister churches, as members in the association or not. And what that effectively does is, is gives to one another a mutual commendation. We recognize those other churches are holding fast to the same doctrines that we hold. So that when we are ready to partner with them in uh, church planting or missions work, we can have a confidence that we're singing from the same song sheet. We're, we, we have the shared faith. We have the same doctrines. And if or when we need to turn to them for help with a conflict, or we are helping them with a conflict, doctrinally we're coming from the same perspective. It's very important. My view is that both formal and informal relationships may be profitable, but formal associational membership is what's asserted in our confession. I think that is the most faithful um, understanding of what the Bible teaches. It's commended by the scriptures and church history. Now let's talk briefly about some of the practical benefits of this formal association. As we see here, this, this picture painted for us in Colossians 4 about Colossae and Laodicea, they're to exchange letters with one another. So the thing that jumps out immediately is that they have, Colossae and Laodicea had the benefit of doctrinal instruction and mutual accountability by the exchange of those apostolic letters. Because when the letter went from Colossae to Laodicea, the Colossians would then know that the Laodiceans knew that they knew what Paul had taught, and vice versa. There was an accountability. We all know what the Word of God says here. Now keep in mind the background. Epaphras had traveled to Rome. Epaphras was the pastor there in Colossae. He had traveled to Rome to seek Paul's counsel regarding false teaching. And he was likely the church planter of, of both Um, Laodicea and Colossae, and those churches now could help guard one another against the errors of the false teachers. And Paul said, here's the letter that I wrote to you, and one to them, switch those, read them both in your hearing, so that you can have a full expression of what I'm helping you both to guard against. But also, they would have the opportunity to cooperate together in, in missions, both planting other churches nearby to them, but also as they sought to work together for the support of other churches and other places. There was the benefit of preventing the abuse of authority. We were talking in Sunday school. One of the brothers mentioned uh, having read about some of the things in the past at Mars Hill and the abuse of pastoral authority that was rampant within that organizational structure. An association of churches can be very helpful in preventing that abuse of authority. And I say either pastorally or congregationally. It can help protect a congregation from being lorded over by a power-hungry pastor. But it also can protect a pastor from being abused by a congregation 
that will not submit itself to its own doctrines. There's, there's a, an ability to cooperate in the training and encouragement of men for the ministry. Now, it's certainly clear from the scriptures that it is Christ who calls pastors. It is Christ who raises up men to, to pr- proclaim the gospel and, and, and equips them and gifts them for that task. And only local churches affirm and ordain those men. But associations of churches may be invaluable to helping in that training process in the encouragement of those men, and giving them opportunities in multiple places to preach. Now, I've only dealt with so far with verses 15 and 16. There's a, there's a, a very encouraging verse, I believe, in verse 17 in Colossians 4. Paul says, And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Now, who is Archippus? Well, we've, we've already noted how the letters of, of Colossians and Philemon are, have to be read together and be understood together. In the introduction to Philemon, Paul says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Most commentators believe that Archippus was the son of Philemon, Anaphia. So he's a young man. Epaphras has been has traveled to Rome. He's a thousand miles away. He's the one, he's the, the well-seasoned pastor who planted the church in Colossae and Laodicea. Now we have this younger man left holding down the fort. Have you ever been in a situation where you had an older seasoned pastor and the church transitioned to a younger, less experienced man? It's not hard to imagine some of the difficulties that can happen there. And how, how Archippus might be tempted to timidity. He might be tempted to think, well, these people aren't really going to take me seriously. Because the man whose shoes I'm trying to fill was so capable and so dedicated that maybe they're not going to listen to me. And some of the saints in Colossae might have been likewise tempted to think, man, this, is, this guy's not what our other pastor was. He's not, I mean, he's, he's, he's young, doesn't have the wisdom. I mean, his kids are all little. Um, he doesn't really understand some of the things we've, we've gone through. And there, there are some have, have sought to, to see Paul admonishing or rebuking Archippus. I don't think that's what's happening at all. In fact, William Hendrickson in his commentary on this passage, was so helpful to me. He points out that there's a parallel here with what's going on in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes to Timothy and says, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now we know Timothy also was a timid sort. He was also a younger man. Do not let them despise you for your youth. Remember? He was probably in his 30s. And here he is tasked with leading a congregation in Ephesus that was, it was a mess. Archippus finds himself in a similar situation. And rather than directly writing to Archippus, what does Paul do? He says to the whole congregation, encourage this man. Encourage him how? Remind him. Look what he says. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. 
Paul says, church, let's, let's acknowledge the obvious here and come alongside this young man and, and put your, tell, them, tell him you were confident in God's calling upon him and that you're eager to follow him. You're eager to be instructed by him. Listen to how Hendrickson phrases this. Since he too, just like Timothy, was probably rather young and somewhat diffident, wondering perhaps whether the church would give him, a man so inexperienced, its full cooperation in this important work. The apostle, very tactfully, orders the congregation itself to encourage him by saying to him, as it were, go right ahead, we are with you, and we promise to help you in every way. The task you are trying to perform was given to you by the Lord, and you were discharging it with strength imparted by him. Hence, attend to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. This is not a rebuke to Archippus. And remember, Paul says, take this letter, send it to Laodicea. The Laodicean Christians would also have the opportunity to encourage Archippus in much the same way. Saints, as as we have opportunity to have uh, other men come and preach here, sometimes we will have younger men. Sometimes we'll have a pastoral intern, a gifted brother from another church. And it may not be quite what you expect. It may not be as polished. There may be some deficiencies. That's part of the process of us working together with sister churches and part of our, our mutual benefit, a mutual duty to encourage men to cultivate their gifts to proclaim the gospel. So Paul is saying to the church, and, and y'all say, you, all of you together say to Archippus, see that you fulfill your ministry. I found some time back a, a church covenant written in 1790. This was drawn up by, the here, here's a good church name, the Baptist Church in Horse Fair, Stony Stratford, Bucks, England. But I want want you to hear, this is one of the paragraphs in their church covenant, and I want you to hear how consistent this is with what Paul is urging the church in Colossae to do with Archippus. Think about how how encouraging this would have been to a young man in the ministry. The covenant says, to esteem our pastor highly in love for his work's sake. This we will endeavor to manifest by frequently and fervently praying for him, diligently attending on his ministry, encouraging his heart and strengthening his hands to the utmost of our power in the work of the Lord, freely consulting him as we have occasion and opportunity, respecting our spiritual affairs, treating him affectionately when present, and speaking respectfully of him when absent. As he is a man of like passions with others, We will endeavor to conceal and cover with a mantle of love his weaknesses and imperfections. Also to communicate unto him our temporal good things, knowing that the Lord hath ordered that they that preach the gospel should live by the gospel. What an encouragement that kind of attitude among the Colossians would have been to this young man who was trying to walk in big shoes. Our confession I read earlier, the whole point of an association of churches was for the peace, increase of love, and mutual edification of all the churches. Paul has in mind here both the church global, the church universal, but also the church local, and to see how those churches partner together and work together. May we note that there, there is a biblical command. This isn't a suggestion. This is a command pressed upon us, upon all true churches, to work together with other churches. Our, our historic Baptist pattern was, was to practice this, these formal associations, to formally unite ourselves so that we're not waiting until the day of trouble to say, who, hmm, who could we call upon? We already know. 
we already have those relationships established. And we think about these practical benefits of, of encouraging the, the work and the advancement of the gospel in various places, in various ways, helping other churches work through conflict, helping us maintain a doctrinal fidelity, a mutual accountability for those things. So how do, you, how do we as, 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 as members, how do, how do you, right where you are, apply these things? One, pray for our associations. Pray for our association of churches, our, our Texas Association, the Texas Area Association of Reformed Baptist Churches, and also for ARPGA, for the Association of Reformed Baptist Churches of America. Uh, I think over the next couple months, that'll, be, that'll have a different name, but that's, that's where we are today. But also pray for our seminary. Pray for the training of young men for the ministry. As you have occasion and opportunity, visit these other churches. Um, take an opportunity to, to get to know the brothers and sisters at other uh, Reformed Baptist churches. Um, seek to attend the associational meetings, and especially we have an annual meeting coming up in July that will have a joint worship service on a Sunday evening. These are wonderful opportunities. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a challenge because it will be in the Dallas area. It's a little bit of a hike, but it's a wonderful benefit to be able to share those, those labors together and to see how God is working in other similar churches. But also encourage men who come and preach here You'll, you'll hear some seasoned pastors. You'll see those that are newer in their labors and the newer in the cultivation of their gifts. And pray for me as I have the occasion to, to preach in other places or uh, to work with our associational churches. Pray that the Lord would unite us together in a common good. Uh, Saints, I am not a prophet or son of a prophet, but I don't think you have to be to see the storm clouds on the horizon in our culture. Uh, to see churches around us that are caving, on, on serious issues, and for us to have uh, to be pre-committed, to be yoked together with churches that are willing to fight for the sake of God's word, willing to stand together on on the doctrines most surely believed among us, on the faith as Jude said once delivered to the saints. Don't we want those kinds of relationships? Don't we want those kinds of of, of benefits among us? And don't we want the opportunity to be a blessing to those to those other churches? May the Lord help us consider these matters. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that your word covers such a wide range of, of topics, of, of doctrines as we seek to obey the Great Commission as we seek to obey our, our Lord's words, recognizing that, that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Him, and that, that upon this local church we have a command placed upon us to go to the nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them all that our Savior has commanded. And yet we recognize the limitations of one local body. And we pray that you'd give us opportunity, you'd give us wisdom, that you would give us provision for working together with brothers and sisters in other places to see the cause of Christ advance, to see the kingdom prosper, to see other churches established, see churches who are suffering in ways to, to be fortified and strengthened. Uh, to receive the benefit of, of fellowship and, and help from our other sister churches. 
We pray that you give us wisdom and understanding in these things and that you would make this a matter of, of regular prayer for your people to call upon you and ask you to prosper the work of all of your churches. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.